Well, good morning, everybody. It, it's good to be back with you uh, once again. Uh, here, I always look forward uh, to that. This morning, um, I'd like to share with you from a text from Philippians, as has been mentioned. And, you know, sometimes uh, it, it's kind of difficult to always know exactly what to preach on when you just, you know, come in, you know, leave a, a church in the morning. And what I've, I've settled on doing is, is preaching on texts that have had a significant impact on my own life. And that's the case of what we're doing today, looking at Philippians 3. This was really one of those watershed moments uh, in my own uh, walk with Jesus and coming to understand in a much deeper way uh, what it is that he has done for us, who we are, what we have in Christ. So let me read for you Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Hear now the word of God. <clears throat> Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Here ends the reading of God's word. Before we look at this together, let's bow before him in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is our privilege, our joy, to come into your presence, to lift up and unite our hearts and voices, to sing your praise, and to give you the thanks that you deserve for your goodness and grace in our lives. It is also our joy and our need to hear you speak to us. And so be with us. Enable us to compose our hearts and minds before you this morning. Speak to us, O oh Lord, words of life, of love, and of truth. Indeed, Father, our prayers right from the scriptures is, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and don't return without watering the earth, 
giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater. So let it be with your word. Let it not return to you empty. Let it accomplish that which you purpose. Let it prosper the things for which you sent it. In other words, let it bring life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have heard the old saying, been around for a little while, you can put lipstick on a pig, but still a pig. You can put lipstick on a pig, and you've, you've already seen pictures uh, where they put a, a, a pearl necklace around this pig. Uh, they put a little dress on the pig. They put a little bonnet with flowers on the pig, and of course the lipstick that goes with it, and looks kind of funny, looks kind of cute. Bottom line is, it's still a pig, no matter what it is that you do with it. There are a lot of variations on that very same theme. Uh, different ways, different contexts. I remember in, in high school, for example, you know, we'd uh, football team or baseball team or whatever, we'd put on uh, our uniforms and we'd be all excited. We'd feel like real football players, real baseball players, that kind of thing. And of course, the coach would come to us and say, Man, just because you have on that uniform doesn't make you a football player. Or it doesn't make you a baseball player. That's something that's going to come from within. That's something that you've got to prove. Just because you wear that uniform doesn't necessarily mean anything. The whole idea of just outward appearances can sometimes be deluding, misleading, under the best of circumstances. And the same principle for Christianity. A lot of what Paul's trying to get at here is that you can look and sound and act sometimes like a Christian. You can go to church. You can be in a church. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a Christian. The variation of that theme in terms of statements that go along is that Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. They're the variation on the theme. And yes, you know, I can wash you, and I could wax you, and I can put oil and gas in you, uh, and everything else, but the fact of the matter is, you're still you. And you can stand in a garage, and that's not going to make you a car. Now, cars belong in garages, that's the same thing, but it's not the same principle. Uh, that's, that's employed here. This is the, what, what so much of what Paul is driving at and some of the dangers that we have been warned about for, for years actually by many people is that there are two fundamental problems sometimes that you encounter uh, in a church culture. One is indoctrination. The other is enculturation. In other words, you've been processed religiously. Indoctrinated and enculturated, which in some ways is not much difference than dressing up a pig, because it's still going to be a pig. Like I said, this is what Paul is concerned about uh, in this text, and he fleshes it out for us in his text, and he uses himself as the prime example of what he, what he is driving at here. He used to think of himself, he says, as a true believer, someone who was right and acceptable to God, but the reality was he was just a man standing in a garage thinking he was a car. And he points out two particular problems in this text. 
points out both the problem of pedigree and the problem of performance. Both of which come under the heading of putting confidence in the flesh, which is a phrase repeated multiple times throughout this text. And it's how it leads off in those first three verses. That putting confidence in the flesh, which is putting confidence in your religiosity, in your own self-righteousness, in trying to make yourself right with God. He points out in verses 4 and 5 the problem of pedigree. He says, now, I have got a pedigree better than all of you. He said, I was circumcised the eighth day. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am a true blue Jew. And there's nobody that's got more of a pedigree along those lines than I do. I've been from the cradle, raised in the faith. I've got all my bases covered. I've been circumcised instructed, bar mitzvahs, whatever. I got it all. And then he moves on to the problem of performance. Saying it, trust, the, the, the problem of trusting in religious deeds and, and rituals and, and good works. And again, he's got quite the resume. He's got all of us beat. He points out how he has been so obedient to the law. How zealous he has been to pursue the things of God. Uh, here and that he has cut all his bases covered. He's of the strictest group of the of, of of Jews, which are the Pharisees here. So he's got most of his beat. He says, if anybody can put confidence in the flesh by pedigree, by performance, by religious observances and rituals, and going through all the things I'm supposed to do, I have got it. But he says, watch out for these kind of people. Because people like me, he says, are dangerous. So this is all 2,000 years ago he's talking in a Jewish context. But we still see some of the main problems today. One of the questions that have sometimes asked people is, are you a Christian? And they get pretty offended. It's a, it sounds like an offensive question. Are you a Christian? And the responses have been all over the place. Well, yeah, I'm born in America. What else do you expect? I've been baptized. I've been raised in the church. I say and believe the right things. I keep my nose clean. I give money. I teach Sunday school. I've even been on a missions trip. I've been catechized. I have been through communicants class, whatever you want. I have been processed. I have been credentialed. I have been told by others that I am a believer. And Paul's response to all of this would be, yeah, I know but are you a Christian? Which sounds so shocking. It sounds so like, what are you even talking about here? And it's the problem. He said, well, I know you've been indoctrinated. And I know you've been enculturated. You know, you know how to say the right things. You know how to act in a church culture, that sort of thing. You've been going for a long time. I get that. But do you understand what it really means? to be a Christian. That's why we move on to these verses 7, 8, 9, which I think are just radical to the point of being shocking. When he says, this is what I'm getting at. All of that stuff we've just talked about, your religion, your obedience, your zeal, your pedigree, your performance, all of that, whatever gain I have or you have, we count it all as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count all of that as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss, three times now, loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law by doing all the right things, believing all the right things, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, being a Christian, he says, not about all those other things. They are signs of something deeper, but they don't make you a, 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 a Christian. Any more than the apple on a tree makes the tree. The tree produces the apples, those things that you'll see, but those things don't make the tree uh, at all. Being a Christian is not about those things. It's not about religion. It's not about uh, rituals. It's not about trying to be a good person, but it's about being right with God through the righteousness of Christ. You don't remember any other phrase from this morning. That's what this text is all about. It's about being right with God through the righteousness of Christ. I found that to be quite radical in my own life and just took me to a whole other understanding of what it meant to be a Christian. And there are two things that are important that are parts of this whole idea of being right with God through the righteousness of Christ. Probably what Paul is getting at here is that first of all, we have to count our own righteousness, our own efforts at self-righteousness as of no valuable, as loss, as trash that they are of absolutely no value in making yourself a Christian. As a matter of fact, we're not just confessing and repenting from our sin. That's important. We do need to confess and repent from our sin, the things that we have done wrong here. But, you know, that only just brings you to a point of neutrality. That cleans the slate. That doesn't do anything more. He says you have to go deeper than that. You actually have to cleanse yourself of your efforts to be right with me through your own efforts. Because you can't do that. And that in and of itself is a deeper level of sinfulness. Why? Because as Isaiah 64 says, everything we have done is as filthy rags. All our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. None of us can do anything perfect. None of us can do anything right. Even the best things we do are tainted, incomplete. There are false motives, incompleteness, done for the wrong reasons, all sorts of things. And I, as one person has said, you even have to repent of your repentance because our repentance isn't complete. Our repentance isn't sincere. Now you get neurotic after a while, so you've got to be careful with all this. But the point is there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. As, as Romans 3.23, famous text points out, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short. The problem is we cannot solve the gulf. We cannot bridge that gulf. We can't, there's a distance we can't cover. We are so far back in the race, we cannot make it up. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No matter how well you do. You might do better than others, but so what? You're still going to fall short. Just think of it this way. Let's just think, say all the people who've ever existed, we have to line up on the coast of California, and the goal is to swim to Hawaii. 
Hawaii will just say that's paradise, okay? I've never been there. Maybe some of you have been. Uh, I hear all sorts of wonderful things about Hawaii, so we'll make that paradise. But to get there, you've got to swim. So everybody starts wading into the water, start wading out of the, the surf, getting out there as far as, it, as you can go. Then, and after a while, you've just got to start dog paddling or swimming or doing whatever. And so a lot of folks who are young or old, out of shape or whatever, are not going to get too far where they finally drown. Other people who are younger and more vigorous and stronger, they're going to get out in the water a pretty good ways. They're going to get a mile or two, maybe three miles out of the water before they finally tire and they drown as well. Then there's others, trained athletes, Olympic swimmers, Mark Phelps, this sort of thing, whatever. They're going to get way out into the water, 25, 30, 40 miles out into the water before they finally tire and drown. And let's just say that Jaws is out there as well, you know, Satan. You know, and he's devouring a few people as well uh, as we go along. The point of the matter is, as you can see, nobody can swim to Hawaii. You can't even get close. You can barely leave sight of the shore of California. You might be able to get further than other people. You might be better than the person sitting next to you or whatever. But what difference does that make? In the end, you're all dead. Everybody drowns, all fall short, nobody can make up the difference. And, that, and that, as that translates into religion, is what Paul is saying here, is that that means that no matter how religious you are, how sincere you are, how hard you try, if you've gone through all the steps, all the rituals, everything else, that doesn't make you a Christian. They can be important for certain ends, but they don't do it. Our efforts are futile. As a matter of fact, our efforts are more than that. They can be an illusion. They can be a false hope that keeps us from the real thing. And it's more than that. They can make us self-centered, hypocritical, arrogant people. Listen to this real quickly. We, we looked at this text actually a couple of years ago. But in, in Luke chapter 18, it says this. Jesus told this parable. This is the parable of the tax collector uh, and the Pharisee. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. See, the problem of pursuing self-righteousness is that you begin to have a self-righteous attitude. You begin to be judgmental. You become overly critical of other people. And that's what happens with that Pharisee who looks at the tax collector and says, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like people like him. But the, 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 the tax collector just comes before God and says, hey, he won't even lift up his eyes and he beats his breast and says, have mercy upon me, the sinner. There's a, there's a humility to him. There's a graciousness to him. And what Jesus' point in that text is, is that the problem of self-righteousness is it makes you insufferable. It makes you intolerant. It makes you arrogant instead of a humble, patient, gracious, understanding person. So there's a serious problem with our self-righteousness, and Paul says we need to be upfront with that, we need to confess it, and we need to turn from it. And what we need to turn to is the second part, is that we must put our faith in what God has done for us, not what we have done for God. And we must be made right with God by receiving, by trusting in the righteousness 
that he himself provides. This has been the way his people have been saved from the beginning, from, the, from Old Testament days. And we're told right when God called Abraham and set everything, this whole redemptive plan in motion back in Genesis, in early Genesis. He set it in motion and it says he, he showed the plan to Abraham and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. And that verse gets quoted over and over again throughout the scriptures. Why? Because that's the paradigm. That's how it works. That's how it worked for the people in the Old Testament. That's how it works for people in the New Testament. We're saved exactly the same way. It hasn't changed at all. And they had their rites and their rituals that were supposed to point them to this fact. They were not the fact in and of themselves. They were to point people to this reality that we could not save ourselves, that we needed to be saved through the righteousness that God would provide himself. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him to be sin who had no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange. This is at the heart of our faith. The great exchange. He who knew no sin, the sinless Savior, the Son of God, comes into this world and he takes upon himself your sin. And with it, everything that goes with it, all the brokenness and all the pain and all the suffering and the judgment and the wrath of God, he who knew no sin took that sin upon himself so that you instead might become righteousness. You get his righteousness. He gets your sin, and you're treated accordingly. He gets judged, the judgment that you deserved. You get treated as right before God and acceptable in his presence because of what Jesus has provided for you. Now, I don't know if Mark Twain was intending to communicate this, but this is the very principle that he communicated in his famous book that he wrote, The Prince and the Pauper. And if you ever read that or Watch the Disney version of the movie uh, or whatever it might be. It's been around for a long time. But just the, the gist of the story is this, is that there's two twins who are born who are separated at birth. One gets adopted by the king and queen and he lives in the castle. And he is treated royally. He gets to eat wonderful food. He sleeps in wonderful conditions, wears wonderful clothes. People are waiting on him hand and foot, the whole thing. Whereas the the other boy gets, gets kind of lost on the streets, grows up without a family, is just wears rags, eats whatever he can find, is kicked around by people who don't like him or disgusted by him, and the whole thing. Well, on the one hand, what happens is the boy who was with the king and the queen often takes a ride in his carriage and he looks out and he says, wow, I wish I could be like these people. I wish I could be free. I wish I could get away from people always telling me what to do and uh, all the things that I'm supposed to do as a prince and this sort of thing. I, I wish I could just be out on the streets and be free. The, the, the pauper, on the other hand, would stand at the gates of the castle and look in and say, oh, I wish I could live in there where I would be safe and secure and live in warmth and comfort and have as much food to eat as I wanted and everything else. Well, one day they meet on the street, just happenstance. There's this, this, this amazing event that they both meet and they hatch this plan. And what they do on the street that day is they change clothes. The pauper takes the prince's robes and puts them on. 
The prince takes the pauper's robes and puts them on. The pauper climbs into the carriage and goes back to the castle. The prince, now dressed as a pauper, goes out into the streets. And what happens? You can guess. The pauper now gets treated like a prince. Not because he himself is any different, but because he's wearing the clothes of a prince. He is clothed in the prince's clothes, and so he gets treated as royalty. He gets all the privileges and the rights and the joys and the comforts of being a prince. But now the prince finds out that life wasn't so good out there after all. This freedom that he thought he wanted. He's just, he has nothing to eat. He has nowhere to stay. He's getting kicked around by people. He doesn't know where to go. The whole thing. But what's the difference between the two? Nothing inherent about either one of them. The difference is that they're clothed differently and that they're treated differently. And that is the principle that Paul is laying out for us here. You are now clothed. If you're a Christian, you are now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and you are treated as such. You are welcomed into his presence, not because you're so great, we still sin, we still mess up, we still have all of our struggles and our doubts and everything else, but my acceptance before God now is not rooted in me. It's not rooted in my performance or my religiosity or anything else. It is rooted in what God has done for me in Jesus and that he has taken my sin and been treated accordingly to what my sin deserved. And you see what your sin deserved when you look at the cross. That's what it deserved. But you get what you don't deserve because Jesus had a perfect righteousness that he gives to you. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him at righteousness. You put your trust in Christ and his righteousness is reckoned to you. It's deposited to your account. It now belongs to you. This is who you are. This is what you have. And there is a true freedom and a true joy, and a real peace that comes from that. Otherwise, as we go through our lives and we mess up all the time, and we struggle with our doubts, you're just not going to wonder, have I, have I really blown it enough that I'm no longer accepted into the kingdom? Have I made so many mistakes, and my faith is so weak, are all these other sorts of things, and will I, will I really be accepted by God when I stand before him? And your confidence is yes, not because of you, but because of Jesus. And that his righteous account has been credited to you. And he will look at you and he will judge you, but he will judge you according to what Christ deserved. And Christ, because Christ took upon himself everything that you deserved. This is the confidence. This is the security this is the freedom and joy that we can have before him. People often ask me the difference. You know, what's the difference between religion and Christianity? Because there's a, there's a world of difference. And the difference is do versus done. It's as simple as that. Religion is all about do. Do this, do that to make yourself acceptable to God. Christianity is all about done. It's been done for you. It's all sealed and packaged and done. If you repent of your sin and repent of your self-righteousness, put your trust in Christ and receive his righteousness, you are his forever. And nothing can take that away from you, no matter how far short you think that you are falling or anything else. 
This is what Paul says again in another fantastic text when he says in Romans 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, is that they, be, that they might be saved. I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God. But it is not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness for everyone who will believe. That's the one way. That's what it's all about. And what the end result is, so that you have not only the security, but he says you do it all so that you can really know God. I do it all for the sake of Christ in order that I might know him as my Lord. I do it all that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and so forth. You now can have a relationship with the one eternal, holy, almighty, righteous God. There's only one way to do that because you can't produce the righteousness required. Jesus did that you. So now you can be brought into the presence. You can have confidence that one day you will stand before him because of what he has done for you. And so I exhort everyone here, everyone listening online, all of you here, not to leave here this morning without putting your trust in Jesus and receiving not just forgiveness of sins. Again, that just brings you to a neutral point. That just wipes the slate clean. And if you're just to go on from there, you're just going to keep accumulating more sins. The thing is, it's not just a matter of your slate being clean, it's that you now get a deposit of righteousness on top of that. That can be yours. Why would you not want to receive that? I exhort everyone to put your trust in that and to find the joy and the security that goes with that. So I can ask you the question again, the way Paul would put it, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Not asking if you're religious. Not asking if you're a moral person. Not asking if you're spiritual. Asking if you're a Christian. Because this is what it is. Are you pursuing, not your own self-righteousness, but are you receiving and trusting in the righteousness that God has provided for you in Christ? If you have, then you have every reason to rejoice and give thanks and praise to your God this day. Let's pray. Our Father, what an amazing text this is. There are realities here that really transcend our capacity to really wrap our heads around. The one thing we know is that Jesus has done it all for us. Our hope, our trust is in him and him alone. Thank you for providing such a great salvation. And then through, because of what Jesus has done, through him, we can now stand in your presence. We can now know you as our God. We can have a confidence and a security that transcends anything we would ever be able to produce ourselves. So we give you thanks and praise and ask that we be able to live our lives in this sort of humble, gracious confidence, knowing that we didn't produce it, you did. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.